Section 4 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume One F, Section Four, Chapter Sixty Three, Part Four. All the defence which Vane could make was fruitless. The court, considering more the general opinion of his active guilt in the beginning and prosecution of the civil wars, than the articles of treason charged against him, took advantage of the letter of the law and brought him in guilty. His courage deserted him not upon his condemnation, though timid by nature. The persuasion of a just cause supported him against the terrors of death, while his enthusiasm, excited by the prospect of glory, embellished the conclusion of a life which through the whole course of it had been so much disfigured by the prevalence of that principle. Lest pity for a courageous sufferer should make impression on the populace, drummers were placed under the scaffold, whose noise, as he began to launch out in reflections on the government, drowned his voice and admonished him to temper the ardor of his zeal. He was not astonished at this unexpected incident. In all his behavior there appeared a firm and animated intrepidity, and he considered death but as a passage to that eternal felicity which he believed to be prepared for him. This man, so celebrated for his parliamentary talents and for his capacity in business, has left some writings behind him. They treat, all of them, of religious subjects, and are absolutely unintelligible no traces of eloquence or even of common sense appear in them a strange paradox did we not know that men of the greatest genius where they relinquish by principle the use of their reason are only enabled by their vigor of mind to work themselves the deeper into error and absurdity it was remarkable that as vane by being the chief instrument of stratford's death had first opened the way for that destruction which overwhelmed the nation so that by his death he closed the scene of blood. He was the last that suffered on account of the civil wars. Lambert, though condemned, was reprieved at the bar, and the judges declared that if Vane's behavior had been equally dutiful and submissive, he would have experienced like lenity in the king. Lambert survived his condemnation near thirty years. He was confined to the Isle of Guernsey, where he lived contented, forgetting all his past schemes of greatness, and entirely forgotten by the nation. He died a Roman Catholic. However odious Vane and Lambert were to the Presbyterians, that party had no leisure to rejoice at their condemnation. The fatal St. Bartholomew approached, the day when the clergy were obliged, by the late law, either to relinquish their livings or to sign the articles required of them. A combination had been entered into by the more zealous of the Presbyterian ecclesiastics to refuse the subscription, in hopes that the bishops would not venture at once to expel so great a number of the most popular preachers. The Catholic party at court, who desired a great rent among the Protestants, encouraged them in this obstinacy, and gave them hopes that the king would protect them in their refusal. The king himself, by his irresolute conduct, contributed, either from design or accident, to increase this opinion. Above all, 
the terms of subscription had been made strict and rigid on purpose to disguise all the zealous and scrupulous among the presbyterians and deprive them of their livings about two thousand of the clergy in one day relinquished their cures and to the astonishment of the court sacrificed their interest to their religious tenets fortified by society in their sufferings they were resolved to undergo any hardships rather than openly renounce those principles which on other occasions they were so apt from interest to warp or elude the church enjoyed the pleasure of retaliation and even pushed as usual the vengeance farther than the offence during the dominion of the parliamentary party a fifth of each living had been left to the ejected clergyman but this indulgence though at first insisted on by the house of peers was now refused to the presbyterians however difficult to conciliate peace among theologians it was hoped by many that some relaxation in the terms of communion might have kept the presbyterians united to the church and have cured those ecclesiastical factions which had been so fatal and were still so dangerous bishoprics were offered to calamy baxter and reynolds leaders among the presbyterians the last only could be prevailed on to accept deaneries and other preferments were refused by many the next measure of the king has not had the good fortune to be justified by any party but is often considered on what grounds i shall not determine as one of the greatest mistakes if not blemishes of his reign it is the sale of dunkirk to the french the parsimonious maxims of the parliament and the liberal or rather careless disposition of charles were ill-suited to each other and notwithstanding the supplies voted him his treasury was still very empty and very much indebted he had secretly received the sum of two hundred thousand crowns from france for the support of portugal but the forces sent over to that country and the fleets maintained in order to defend it had already cost the king that sum and together with it nearly double the money which had been paid as the queen's portion the time fixed for payment of his sister's portion to the duke of orleans was approaching tangiers a fortress from which great benefit was expected was become an additional burden to the crown and rutherford who now commanded in dunkirk had increased the charge of that garrison to a hundred and twenty thousand pounds a year these considerations had such influence not only on the king but even on clarendon that this uncorrupt minister was the most forward to advise accepting a sum of money in lieu of a place which he thought the king from the narrow state of his revenue was no longer able to retain by the treaty with portugal it was stipulated that dunkirk should never be yielded to the spaniards france was therefore the only purchaser that remained d'estratus was invited over by a letter from the chancellor himself in order to conclude the bargain nine hundred thousand pounds were demanded one hundred thousand were offered the english by degrees lowered their demand the french raised their offer and the bargain was concluded at four hundred thousand pounds the artillery and stores were valued at a fifth of the sum the importance of this sale was not at this time sufficiently known either abroad or at home the french monarch himself so fond of acquisitions and so good a judge of his own interest thought that he had made a hard bargain and this sum in appearance so small was the utmost which he would allow his ambassador to offer 
a new incident discovered such a glimpse of the king's character and principles as at first the nation was somewhat at a loss how to interpret but such as subsequent events by degrees rendered sufficiently plain and manifest he issued a declaration on pretense of mitigating the rigors contained in the act of uniformity after expressing his firm resolution to observe the general indemnity and to trust entirely to the affections of his subjects not to any military power for the support of his throne he mentioned the promises of liberty of conscience contained in his declaration of breda and he subjoined that as in the first place he had been zealous to settle the uniformity of the church of england in discipline ceremony and government and shall ever constantly maintain it so as for what concerns the penalties upon those who living peaceably do not conform themselves thereunto through scruple and tenderness of misguided conscience but modestly and without scandal perform their devotions in their own way he should make it his special care so far as in him lay without invading the freedom of parliament to incline their wisdom next approaching sessions to concur with him in making such act for that purpose as may enable him to exercise with a more universal satisfaction that power of dispensing which he conceived to be inherent in him here a most important prerogative was exercised by the king but under such artful reserves and limitations as might prevent the full discussion of the claim and obviate a breach between him and his parliament the foundation of this measure lay much deeper and was of the utmost consequence the king during his exile had imbibed strong prejudices of favor of the catholic religion and according to the most probable accounts had already been secretly reconciled in form to the church of rome the great zeal expressed by the parliamentary party against all papists had always from a spirit of opposition inclined the court and all the royalists to adopt more favorable sentiments toward that sect which through the whole course of the civil wars had strenuously supported the rights of the sovereign the rigor too which the king during his abode in scotland had experienced from the presbyterians disposed him to run into the other extreme and to bear a kindness to the party most opposite in its genius to the severity of those religionists the solicitations and importunities of the queen mother the contagion of the company which he frequented the view of a more splendid and courtly mode of worship the hopes of indulgence and pleasure all these causes operated powerfully on a young prince whose careless and dissolute temper made him incapable of adhering closely to the principles of his early education but if the thoughtless humor of charles rendered him an easy convert to popery the same disposition ever prevented the theological tenets of that sect from taking any fast hold of him during his vigorous state of health while his blood was warm and his spirits high a contempt and disregard to all religion held possession of his mind and he might more properly be denominated a deist than a catholic but in those revolutions of temper when the love of raillery gave place to reflection and his penetrating but negligent understanding was clouded with fears and apprehensions he had starts of mere sincere conviction and a sect which always possessed his inclination was then master of his judgment and opinion but though the king thus fluctuated during his whole reign between irreligion which he more openly professed and popery to which he retained a secret propensity his brother the duke of york had zealously adopted all the principles of that theological party 
His eager temper and narrow understanding made him a thorough convert, without any reserve from interest or doubts from reasoning and inquiry. By his application to business, he had acquired a great ascendant over the king, who, though possessed of more discernment, was glad to throw the burden of affairs on the duke, of whom he entertained little jealousy. On pretense of easing the Protestant dissenters, they agreed upon a plan for introducing a general toleration, and giving the Catholics the free exercise of their religion, at least the exercise of it in private houses. The two brothers saw with pleasure so numerous and popular a body of the clergy refuse conformity, and it was hoped that, under shelter of their name, the small and hated sect of the Catholics might meet with favor and protection. But while the king pleaded his early promises of toleration, and insisted on many other plausible topics, the Parliament, who sat a little after the declaration was issued, could by no means be satisfied with this measure. The declared intention of easing the dissenters, and the secret purpose of favoring the Catholics, were equally disagreeable to them, and in these prepossessions they were encouraged by the king's ministers themselves, particularly the Chancellor. The House of Commons represented to the king that his declaration of Breda contained no promise to the Presbyterians or other dissenters, but only an expression of his intentions, upon supposition of the concurrence of Parliament, that even if the nonconformists had been entitled to plead a promise, they had entrusted this claim, as all their other rights and privileges, to the House of Commons, who were their representatives, and who now freed the king from that obligation that it was not to be supposed that his majesty and the houses were so bound by that declaration as to be incapacitated from making any laws which might be contrary to it that even at the king's restoration there were laws of uniformity in force which could not be dispensed with but by act of parliament and that the indulgence intended would prove most pernicious both to church and state would open the door to schism encourage faction disturb the public peace, and discredit the wisdom of the legislature. The king did not think proper, after this remonstrance, to insist any further at present on the project of indulgence. In order to deprive the Catholics of all hopes, the two houses concurred in a remonstrance against them. The king gave a gracious answer, though he scrupled not to profess his gratitude towards many of that persuasion, on account of their faithful services in his father's cause and in his own. A proclamation, for form's sake, was soon after issued against Jesuits and Romish priests, but care was taken, by the very terms of it, to render it ineffectual. The Parliament had allowed that all foreign priests belonging to the two queens should be accepted, and that a permission for them to remain in England should still be granted. In the proclamation, the word foreign was purposely omitted and the queens were thereby authorized to give protection to as many English priests as they should think proper. That the king might reap some advantage from his compliances, however fallacious, he engaged the commons anew into an examination of his revenue, which, chiefly by the negligence in levying it, had proved, he said, much inferior to the public charges. Notwithstanding the price of Dunkirk, his debts, he complained, amounted to a considerable sum and to satisfy the commons that the money formerly granted him had not been prodigally expended, he offered to lay before them the whole account of his disbursements. It is, however, agreed on all hands that the king, though during his banishment he had managed his small and precarious income with great order and economy, 
had now much abated of these virtues, and was unable to make his royal revenues suffice for his expenses. The commons, without entering into too nice a disquisition, voted him for subsidies, and this was the last time that taxes were levied in that manner. Several laws were made this session with regard to trade. The militia also came under consideration, and some rules were established for ordering and arming it. It was enacted that the king should have no power of keeping the militia under arms above fourteen days in the year. The situation of this island, together with its great naval power, has always occasioned other means of security, however requisite, to be much neglected among us. And the Parliament showed here a very superfluous jealousy of the king's strictness in disciplining the militia. The principles of liberty, rather, require a contrary jealousy. The Earl of Bristol's friendship with Clarington, which had subsisted, with great intimacy during their exile and the distresses of the royal party, had been considerably impaired since the restoration, by the Chancellor's refusing his assent to some grants which Bristol had applied for to a court lady, and a little after the latter nobleman, agreeably to the impetuosity and indiscretion of his temper, broke out against the minister in the most outrageous manner. He even entered a charge of treason against him before the House of Peers, but had concerted his efforts so imprudently that the judges, when consulted, declared that neither for its matter nor its form could the charge be legally received. The articles, indeed, resemble more the incoherent altercations of a passionate enemy than a serious accusation fit to be discussed by a court of judicature. And Bristol himself was so ashamed of his conduct and defeat that he absconded during some time. Notwithstanding his fine talents, his eloquence, his spirit, and his courage, he could never regain the character which he lost by this hasty and precipitate measure. But though Clarendon was able to elude this rash assault, his credit at court was sensibly declining, and in proportion as the king found himself established on the throne, he began to alienate himself from a minister whose character was so little suited to his own. Charles's favor for the Catholics was always opposed by Clarendon. Public liberty was secured against all attempts of the overzealous royalist, prodigal grants of the king were checked or refused, and the dignity of his own character was so much consulted by the Chancellor that he made it an inviolable rule, as did also his friend Southampton, never to enter into any connection with the royal mistresses. The king's favorite was Mrs. Palmer, afterwards created Duchess of Cleveland, a woman prodigal, rapacious, dissolute, violent, revengeful. She failed not in her turn to undermine Clarendon's credit with his master, and her success was at this time made apparent to the whole world. Secretary Nicholas, the Chancellor's great friend, was removed from his place, and Sir Harry Bennet, his avowed enemy, was advanced to that office. Bennet was soon after created Lord Arlington. Though the King's conduct had hitherto, since his restoration, been in the main laudable, men of penetration began to observe that those virtues by which he had at first so much dazzled and enchanted the nation had great show but not equal solidity. His good understanding lost much of its influence by his want of application, his bounty was more the result of a felicity of disposition than any generosity of character. His social humor led him frequently to neglect his dignity. His love of pleasure was not attended with proper sentiment and decency, and while he seemed to bear a good will to every one that approached him, 
he had a heart not very capable of friendship and he had secretly entertained a very bad opinion and distrust of mankind but above all what sullied his character in the eyes of good judges was his negligent ingratitude toward the unfortunate cavaliers whose zeal and sufferings in the royal cause had known no bounds this conduct however in the king may from the circumstances of his situation and temper admit of some excuse at least of some alleviation as he had been restored more by the efforts of his reconciled enemies than of his ancient friends the former pretended a title to share his favor and being from practice acquainted with public business they were better qualified to execute any trust committed to them the king's revenues were far from being large or even equal to his necessary expenses and his mistresses and the companions of his mirth and pleasures gained by solicitation every request from his easy temper the very poverty to which the more zealous royalists had reduced themselves by rendering them insignificant made them unfit to support the king's measures and caused him to deem them a useless encumbrance and as many false and ridiculous claims of merit were offered his natural indolence averse to a strict discussion of inquiry led him to treat them all with equal indifference the parliament took some notice of the poor cavaliers sixty thousand pounds were at one time distributed among them mrs lane also and the penderells had handsome presents and pensions from the king but the greater part of the royalists still remained in poverty and distress aggravated by their cruel disappointment in their sanguine hopes and by seeing favor and preferment bestowed upon their most inveterate foes with regard to the act of indemnity and oblivion they universally said that it was an act of indemnity to the king's enemies and of oblivion to his friends end of section four chapter sixty three part four recording by jim dennison j i m d e n i s o n dot i can voice dot com